Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, many factors can be listed as motives in murder cases, such as greed, love, or revenge. But when it comes to family annihilators, There is no way to make a jury understand why someone would commit such a horrendous act. When the person accused of wiping out generations of the same family happens to be a pillar of the community, a person in a position of trust and power, any sense of security is lost. But faith is not. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 77 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. It was early on the morning of Tuesday, July 8, 2003, when Kelsey Spahn made her way over to her best friend Joni's house at 3rd and P Street in Bakersfield, California. This was the second day in a row that Kelsey had called over to the house 39-year-old Joni Harper shared with her 70-year-old mother, Ernestine, and her three young children, Marcus, Lindsay, and Marshall. Kelsey had last seen the Harpers at the Sunday morning church service two days earlier, when Joni brought her six-week-old baby boy to their place of worship for the first time. Afterward, they went for some lunch before Joni, Ernestine, and the three children went home for their usual Sunday afternoon nap before the evening's church service. Kelsey was surprised when they didn't show up to church that evening, but she knew how much Joni had been going through lately and thought that she might have just needed a break. When Kelsey couldn't reach Joni on the phone the following morning, she decided to stop by the house, but she got no answer at the door. With no contact by 6.30 a.m. on Tuesday morning, she went back and tried again. Ernestine Harper was safety conscious, and all of the windows on the single-story house had security bars installed. The front door also had a wrought iron entry gate enclosure for added protection. There was silence when Kelsey knocked on the door, so she walked around to the side of the L-shaped house and was stunned to find the gate covering the sliding doors was partially open. Peering inside, Kelsey noticed the house was trashed and immediately thought there had been a break-in. Kelsey rushed through the sliding doors and turned right toward Joni's bedroom. She didn't even have to walk into the room to know that something terrible had happened. Joni's feet were hanging over the side of the bed, and Kelsey could see they were purple. Lying next to her were the bodies of her children. 
She quickly called 911 to report what she had found and said, My sister, my best friend, she's dead. Please help me. Detective Scott Miller from Bakersfield Police was first at the scene. He walked into Joni's bedroom and saw two-year-old Lindsay lying across the bed next to her mother's feet, wearing a blue plaid dress. Her eyes were closed, as were Joni's, as if they had simply fallen asleep. But the blood across the white sheets made it clear that that wasn't the case. And as the detective lifted pillows next to Joni, he found four-year-old Marcus, who had his eyes open. It was immediately apparent that they were dead, and had been for at least a day. The detective left the bedroom and walked down the hallway past the sliding doors toward the front of the house. Lying dead in the hallway, he found Ernestine, with apparent gunshot wounds to the face. An old revolver was on the ground next to her. The house appeared to have been ransacked, and the television was on the floor, and the contents of a purse had been spilt out. During the initial walkthrough of the house, the investigators could not see six-week-old Marshall anywhere. After a crime scene photographer quickly captured images of the bedroom, another search was carried out. When the sheets were pulled back from the bed, baby Marshall's lifeless body was found between his mother and older brother. Ernestine Harper had lived in Bakersfield for over 30 years. This is where she raised her five children alone. She was a devout Christian who had moved from Texas to a one-bedroom apartment in Bakersfield to give her children the best chance in life. Ernestine taught her sons and daughters the importance of faith, family, and a good education. She worked hard to afford the yellow house on 3rd Street and was proud to have built a life for herself and her children. When Ernestine was busy working as a lab technician in a local hospital, her children cared for each other, paying extra attention to the youngest child, Joni. Ernestine's faith was passed down to her children, and when both of her sons became ministers, she was incredibly proud. Her son Eddie later said, She loved telling people about Christ and about the church, so for us to do that as a profession— she was putting herself in us that we would fulfill that dream. As well as the love she gave to her family, Ernestine actively supported her community, especially those she felt were persecuted. Ernestine was a prominent activist for justice in the 1990s when a 17-year-old Wasco High School student, Offered Rollins IV, was accused of killing his girlfriend. Rollins was tried twice, but eventually, the charges against him were dropped, and his family credited Ernestine's support as a factor in his freedom. Rollins' grandmother, Doris, said, We dearly loved Ernestine. She meant everything to us. She was a very religious woman. She would say what the Lord told her to say. She would not back down. As well as helping those in Bakersfield, Ernestine had gone on ministering missions in African countries with her church and worked with several volunteer organizations to support those impacted by crime and poverty. Joni Harper was the baby of the family, and apart from her mother's influence, Joni had followed in her siblings' footsteps when it came to sports and education. Joni was a star basketball player at Bakersfield High School and the first female to officiate at the boys' varsity level. She then went on to collegiate-level games and to work with the California Collegiate Athletic Association women's games. Like her siblings, Joni attended Southwestern Christian College in Terrell, Texas, before transferring to Pepperdine University. Aside from officiating, Joni worked for the Bakersfield City School District as a campus supervisor at local schools, including Emerson Middle School, which was across the street from her mother's house, and John C. Fremont School. She also worked at a group home where she met a man named Vincent Brothers. Brothers was a Long Island native who had moved to Bakersfield to work as a school administrator. They quickly developed a relationship, and in November of 1998, they welcomed their first child together, 
a little boy called Marcus. Marcus was a happy and social little guy who was overjoyed when his baby sister Lindsay was born. Lindsay was named after Joni's older sister, Linda, and her best friend, Kelsey. Joni and her children were living with Ernestine when Marshall was born in mid-2003. Just six weeks later, the five members making up three generations of the same family were killed in what seemed to be a motiveless but targeted attack. Although the scene had all the hallmarks of a botched break-in, nothing seemed to be stolen. Large sums of cash were left untouched on the nightstand beside the bed where Joni and her children had been killed. There was also no sign of forced entry. Ernestine had been an outspoken activist and a crusader for justice. For a time, the investigators considered if that could have made her a target. However, when the autopsy results came back, it was clear that Ernestine had not been the focus of the attack. Eleven spent shell casings were found throughout the house, and all of the bullets had been fired from a 22 caliber gun. Not the gun that was located next to Ernestine's body. It was believed that the shooter had entered the house as the family slept between church services on July 6th. As Joni and her three children were napping in the same bed, the shooter crept into the room and shot Joni five times. Afterwards, they shot two-year-old Lindsay in the back, and it was believed that at this point, Ernestine Harper woke up and called out from her bedroom down the hall. Ernestine must have grabbed her own pistol for protection as she stepped out of her bedroom, but she never got a chance to raise it before she was shot in the face twice. The shooter then walked back into the bedroom where Marcus and Marshall were lying next to their mother and sister's dead bodies. Four-year-old Marshall must have been terrified, as the autopsy showed he had bitten through his hand before he was shot in the head. Six-week-old Marshall was shot in the back. Joni Harper was then stabbed seven times before Marcus was covered with pillows and a sheet pulled up over Joni and Marshall's bodies. Based on the level of decomposition and the contents of the victim's stomachs, the time of death was estimated to have been shortly after they returned from having lunch following the Sunday morning service on July 6th. The quintuple homicide stunned the Bakersfield community. Although the area had seen multiple murder cases in recent memory, the mass killing was shocking. Bakersfield Police Chief Eric Matlock spoke at a press conference on the day the bodies were discovered and stated, This is very tragic. I haven't seen anything like this in many, many years. Timothy Lamucci, the defense attorney who had represented Rollins, said, Who would want to kill her? She had a heart of gold. I think the violence against her and her family is violence against the whole community. As flowers and cards began to pile up outside the garden walls of the home, many expressed their disbelief and sadness. Joni's longtime friend and high school basketball coach, Pat Shiloh, asked the question that was on everyone's minds. This should not have happened, especially to those little babies. How could someone kill those little babies? One of Joni's co-workers, Irene Valos, recalled how good Joni was with the children on campus, how she brought her own children to work with her on occasion. She said, They were friendly, smiley, and happy little children. She was proud of them, and she was really bonded to them. She was just a good mom. As those who knew the family reeled, the police still had to inform Joni's estranged husband, Vincent, that his ex-wife and three children had been brutally murdered. But... They didn't know where Vincent was. According to the Californian, Vincent Brothers was one of ten children raised by a single mother in Long Island, New York. He struggled to behave in school until he met a school counselor in the sixth grade who encouraged him to try harder and apply himself. After obtaining a wrestling scholarship, Vincent attended Norfolk State University in Virginia where he met and married his first wife, who was a teacher. 
It was here that he met Bakersfield City Councilwoman Irma Carson, who recruited his wife during the late 80s to come to California and teach. His then-wife accused him of domestic abuse in 1988, and his wife divorced him two years later. Vincent eventually became a teacher as well, after obtaining his degree from California State University. In 1992, he married for a second time, but the marriage ended within a few months, and his wife said that he had been violent to her and had threatened to kill her. In stark contrast to his love life, Vincent was thriving in his career, and he was promoted to vice principal of Emerson Junior High School and later transferred to Fremont. Vincent and Joni were married in January of 2000, but after less than a month of living together, they separated. Vincent was reportedly minimally present in his child's life. Despite the breakup, Joni and Vincent continued to get back together and had two more children as a result. Things seemed to be improving in early 2003 when they remarried, and Vincent moved into Ernestine's house on 3rd Street. According to Joni's best friend, Kelsey, he was much more active in his children's lives at this point. He had even made some improvements to the house, including upgrading the garage door and painting some of the rooms. But the marriage broke down again, and Vincent moved out. On July 2nd, he went to visit his brother Melvin in Ohio, and a week later, the brothers then made their way to North Carolina to spend time with their mother. Vincent's mother had been informed about the murders before her sons arrived in North Carolina, and she arranged to meet them at a gas station to break the news to Vincent that his wife and children had been killed. By this point, the media were reporting that the police were looking to speak to Vincent Brothers in relation to the murders, so he presented himself to a police station in North Carolina. Bakersfield investigators were informed that Vincent had come to the station, so they quickly arranged to fly out to interview him the following day. Vincent appeared to be beyond consoling when investigators arrived, and he repeatedly began screaming and crying for his mother and told the interviewing detectives that he wanted to go home. He had an alibi for the time of the murders as he had left Bakersfield and flew to Ohio on July 2nd. Phone records showed that he had placed a call from Ohio to Joni, who was in Bakersfield that night. The following day, he went for a meal with his brother's family and had receipts to prove it. His brother, sister-in-law, and niece all recalled that he was in their house for the entire weekend. Credit card receipts showed that purchases had been made from Vincent's card on Sunday, July 6th, the day that his family were believed to have been killed. Vincent was released without charge and returned to Bakersfield, where his attorney released a statement on Friday, July 11th. The statement read, He returns to Bakersfield as a grieving father, husband, and son-in-law. Mr. Brothers and the Bakersfield community, along with all of us who knew Ernestine, Joni, Marcus, Lindsay, and Marshall, have suffered a devastating loss. Mr. Brothers' main priority at the current time is to make funeral arrangements for his family and to bid farewell to his loved ones. Mr. Brothers requests time and space as he goes through this grieving process. Bakersfield Police Captain Neil Mahan told reporters that Vincent Brothers was the only potential suspect, but they did not have enough evidence to obtain a formal arrest warrant. Speaking about the decision to allow Vincent to walk out of the North Carolina police station without being charged, Chief Eric Matlock said, It does not mean we are pursuing other leads than we were before. We just want to do this right. We will be meticulous, methodical, and relentless in our investigation. The police were still searching for the gun used in the murders, and they searched Vincent's apartment and storage unit before he returned to Bakersfield but they found nothing. That evening, a memorial service was held at the church the family attended. Over 250 people packed into the church, including Ernestine's surviving children. Speaking outside of the Compassion Christian Center, Eddie Harper, Ernestine's son, said the family did not want to rush to judgment after Vincent was named the only suspect. Eddie stated, 
If the perpetrator isn't found, God will avenge. We will leave it in his hands. I did not know Vincent. We're not here as his judge. If he is innocent, it would be a travesty to judge him outside the court. At another service held in the family's honor two days later, Minister Crawford Muhammad called Ernestine Harper an angel on earth. No one could understand why the family had been targeted. Mike Patton, a friend and fellow referee of Joni's, told reporters, If I had to pick any person I knew who had no enemies, that everyone cared for, that didn't see black or white, that's Joni Harper. Despite Vincent's notable absence from the memorial services, he attended the funeral held on Wednesday, July 16th at Bakersfield Convention Center. Over 2,000 people made their way into the convention center for the three-hour service, which was officiated by Ernestine's sons, Eddie and Robert. Four white caskets were placed at the front of the service, as baby Marshall was to be buried with his mother. Vincent sat flanked by his family members as Joni's brother Eddie spoke about the victims. He recalled hearing Marshall's newborn whimpers during a phone call with his mother, how Lindsay was a funny little girl who was full of life. Marcus was an intelligent and affectionate four-year-old who loved hugs. He also remembered how he took care of Joni when they were kids, he told the mourners. She was just proud that her big brother did her hair. I didn't know many styles. All I could do was just plate it up. Speaking about his mother, Ernestine, Eddie described her as a mother to all. He said, She gave us so much. Our mother gave us this beautiful smile that we'll always remember. She gave us strength. Eddie believed it was a joy to be able to suffer like they were, and he put his trust in God that good would come from the sorrow. Offered Rollins, who Ernestine had supported throughout his time accused of murder, also spoke at the service. He stated, There was a time when I was extremely weak and isolated, and Miss Ernestine Harper spoke to me. She told me it's when you're at your weakest you find your greatest strength. Robert Harper spoke about his reluctance to judge the person who killed his mother, sister, niece, and nephews. He said, I harbor no ill will for any person, even the one responsible for this. There is only forgiveness. The Bible says, God says, Vengeance belongs unto me, and I will repay, saith the Lord. God doesn't need our help. Vincent Brothers sobbed in his seat as five white doves were released in memory of the victims at their graveside service in Hillcrest Cemetery. As Vincent left the cemetery in a limousine, he was tailed by detectives who had him under constant surveillance as they continued their investigation. Vincent refused to speak with the Bakersfield detectives, so instead they interviewed his brother Melvin, who he was staying with in Ohio at the time of the murders. Melvin was questioned about the time his brother spent at the house and the purchases made with Vincent's credit card on the day of the murder. Footage from a Walmart showed that Melvin had made the purchases using his brother's card on July 6th, and when Melvin was told that he could be charged as an accessory to homicide, he admitted that he had been the one to use the card because his brother had told him to. Witnesses had come forward to say they had seen Vincent in Bakersfield on the weekend of July 4th to July 6th. One former student recalled seeing Vincent walk to Harper's house as he sat with a friend on the porch next door. Joni and her children had been at a barbecue at Joni's friend Michelle Baptiste's house that night until 11 p.m. The investigation continued for months as Vincent remained on paid leave from his position at the Fremont School. In January 2004, Police Chief Eric Matlock confirmed that Vincent remained a suspect but did not reveal if there were any arrests pending. Chief Matlock told the Californian he was optimistic about the outcome of the investigation and explained that it was taking so long to get an arrest because there were multiple agencies working on a complex case. He stated, The scene was cold. We didn't have a smoking gun. There was a lot of forensic evidence to process. I said early on that we are going to be meticulous and take our time. 
the detectives will continue to work to see that justice is done. There isn't a day that goes by that I personally don't think about the Harper family. Eddie Harper was patient with the investigators, and he said he was looking forward to getting justice. Eddie remarked, I just believe they will make an arrest. I do hope that it's not Vincent, but if it is him, we hope that he is prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. On April 30, 2004, 41-year-old Vincent Brothers was arrested on suspicion of five counts of murder. A report written by the lead detective on the case revealed that the police had discovered that Vincent had been abusive in past relationships. Joni had told one of her friends that she was afraid Vincent would try to get rid of her two months before she was killed. Although Vincent had gone to Ohio to visit his brother, he had rented a car there. Police found that he had put over 4,500 miles on the vehicle, meaning he could have driven back to Bakersfield to commit the murders. A federal grand jury investigation had been held in Fresno where Vincent's brother Melvin testified, yes, he had used Vincent's credit card and forged his signature on the receipts at his brother's request. This dismantled Vincent's alibi. After he was arraigned on the charges, the district attorney, Ed Jagels, announced that his office planned to seek the death penalty in the case. As the first anniversary of the killings came around, Vincent Brothers was being held in Lurdo Jail without bond. Eddie Harper told the Bakersfield Californian that he had faith in both the investigators and God. He stated, Come what may, whether there is a conviction, we know that the Lord knows. God knows. Our trust and hope and confidence is in Him and what He can do. A candlelit vigil was held outside the Harper home, and a tree planting ceremony was held in the victim's honor at Lowell Park. Ernestine's daughter and Joni's sister, Elaine Bird, spoke at the cemetery and said it felt like it was only yesterday since they had lost their loved ones. Elaine explained that the family had become closer as a result and they held tight to their faith that their relatives were waiting for them in heaven. Speaking about Vincent Brothers, Elaine said, We don't know if Vincent did this, but we pray for Vincent. He is innocent until proven guilty. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As Vincent sat in jail awaiting his next hearing, details about his past emerged when his personal records were released. When he was working at Emerson Junior High School in 1996, he allegedly harassed a female coworker. The record also detailed an alleged incident at his house. The woman went to Vincent's home at around 11 p.m. She was alone, and he dragged her into his bedroom and began hitting her and taking photographs of her. 
She said that she scratched him and managed to run from the house. This had been the final incident after months of harassment in the workplace. When the woman and her husband tried to report it, they were asked by a detective if they were sure they wanted to go through with the report as, quote, Mr. Brothers is a role model in the community. Afterwards, she had asked that the school stop investigating Vincent because she was afraid he would retaliate. Vincent Brothers was transferred to Fremont soon after. After years of waiting, the trial finally began in February 2007. Vincent Brothers was facing the death penalty if convicted of murdering his mother-in-law, his wife, and his three young children. Opening the case for the prosecution, Deputy District Attorney Lisa Green said that Vincent Brothers wanted to kill his family for financial reasons. The state's case was that Vincent had driven from Ohio to Bakersfield and back in order to create an alibi for the time of the murders, but he was seen fleeing the house after a neighbor heard gunshots. The prosecution alleged that on July 3rd, Vincent left Ohio in a rental car and began driving back to Bakersfield. The meter in the car showed that thousands of miles had been put on it during the time Vincent had rented the vehicle. An employee with the rental car company later testified that he had logged over 5,000 miles on the car, enough to get from Ohio to California and back. The prosecution said that he arrived in Bakersfield on Sunday, July 6th, and killed his family while they napped after having lunch with Joni's best friend, Kelsey Spahn. Neighbors saw Vincent near the home between 2 and 4 p.m. that day. While Vincent was in Bakersfield, he had arranged for his brother Melvin to use his credit card to make purchases to bolster his alibi. The prosecution argued that he was an unloving and distant father who did not want the financial or emotional burden of having a family, as he had numerous affairs with multiple women during the time that he was with Joni Harper. Vincent's brother Melvin took the stand and testified that he had not seen Vincent over the weekend that he allegedly murdered his family. Melvin admitted that he had initially lied about using his brother's credit card, but said that he was frightened at the time. Melvin and Vincent weren't exceptionally close as brothers. They had not seen each other in 10 years before April 2003, when Vincent arrived in Ohio to visit. Security camera footage from an ATM in Bakersfield captured Vincent withdrawing money at the time he was supposed to be in Ohio that month. He claimed he had traveled back by bus when Ernestine told him that Joni was sick, but Joni's doctor testified that she was doing well before she gave birth to Marshall. The prosecution alleged that his visit was a trial run for Vincent, so he would be prepared when he decided to kill his family three months later. Melvin said that Vincent had arrived unannounced in July 2003. The next witnesses testified about seeing Vincent near the Harper home on the 4th of July weekend. Joni's friend Michelle Baptiste then spoke about the relationship between Joni and Vincent. She explained that she had been friends with Joni for over a decade. She had even prepared to be in the room with Joni when her oldest child Marcus was born, but Joni had an emergency cesarean section instead. Michelle told the court that Vincent had not been present for the births of Marcus or Lindsay. She said that Joni and Vincent got married at the courthouse in 2000, and Joni had been excited to move out of her mother's home into Vincent's house. But within a month, the relationship broke down when Joni felt betrayed. When Joni got pregnant with her youngest child, Marshall, she was upset but agreed to give Vincent another chance, and they were remarried in Las Vegas. Michelle said that she did not attend. I told her I didn't think it was one of her better decisions. Medical evidence followed. Deborah Hanks, a pathologist who assisted in the autopsies of the Harper family, said that she believed the victims had been killed at least 24 hours before they were discovered due to decomposition and the contents of their stomachs. This was corroborated by the fact that the food found in Joni's stomach was consistent with the meal she ate while out for lunch after the Sunday morning church service. Hanks explained that the shots had been fired from six inches to three feet away, with the closest range wounds being seen on those who were sleeping in the bedroom. 
When asked about marks on Marcus's neck, the pathologist said they could have been caused by someone gripping the four-year-old's throat. Marcus was awake when he was shot, his eyes were open, and there was an injury to his hand consistent with him having bitten it. The prosecution argued that this injury proved how terrified the little boy was. It bolstered the contention that he had only stayed in his room because his father told him to. A number of women testified about affairs they'd had with Vincent Brothers during the time he was in a relationship with Joni Harper. Most of the women were employees in the school district, and some of the affairs lasted five years. The prosecution said that Vincent likely killed his family to obtain emotional and financial freedom, so he could see whoever he wanted. Aside from circumstantial evidence, physical evidence was also presented to strengthen the case against the defendant. A plastic glove tip found at the crime scene contained his DNA, and the prosecution argued that he must have worn the gloves while he staged the break-in. Lynn Kimsey, an expert entomologist from UC Davis, testified about bug samples collected from the radiator and air filter of the rental car. She said that she found paper wasps, true bugs, and a grasshopper leg, species that are mainly found in the western U.S., not in Ohio. Moths and other nocturnal bugs were found on the car, which indicated it had been driven at night. This was consistent with the prosecution's claim that Vincent had traveled west to Bakersfield, driving for hours through the night to get back to Ohio before his crime was discovered. Supervising Special Agent Mark Safarik then testified. He had worked with the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit and had been asked to assist in the investigation. He said that the Harpers had a low-risk lifestyle and they were a church-going family with no enemies, and Ernestine Harper had made her house into a fortress compared with other homes in the area. Agent Safarik voiced the opinion that the family were killed by someone who had intimate knowledge of the house, as the path from Joni's bedroom to the hallway where Ernestine was killed was not easily navigated by someone entering the house for the first time. He said he believed the killer had entered through the garage door before going into the house. Testimony earlier in the trial had established that Vincent Brothers had installed a new garage door at the property. Safarik said it was clear that Joni was the main target of the attack as she had sustained most of the injuries. While the other victims sustained just fatal shots, Joni had been shot numerous times before being stabbed seven times after she was already dead. Agent Safarik brought the jury through what he believed took place in the house. The killer shot Joni first, then two-year-old Lindsay, who was at the foot of the bed. The sound of the gun would have woken Ernestine, and when she was alerted, the killer moved quickly down the hall and fired two shots, striking her in the head and killing her instantly. Afterwards, the killer walked back into the bedroom and found Marcus awake and terrified on the bed, having bitten through his hand in fear. After shooting Marcus in the temple, the killer reached over him and shot baby Marshall, who was in the middle of the bed. He also said that only someone physically or financially responsible for a six-week-old baby would have the motive to kill them. Joni was then stabbed multiple times. The agent said that the killer had covered the victims with pillows or a sheet, depersonalizing them, something that only someone familiar with them would do. This would have made it easier for the killer to move through the house, staging the scene to look like a botched break-in. After the court heard from over 70 prosecution witnesses, the defense began presenting their case. The defense team argued that Vincent was in Ohio when the murders were committed, and that their own pathologist would dispute the time of death, further proving he was nowhere near Bakersfield when his family were killed. Defense attorneys Michael Gardena and Anthony Bryan claimed that the rental car records were wrong and that Vincent did not drive back to Bakersfield. They said he had flown from Bakersfield to Ohio on July 2nd, arriving at 8 p.m. Just over an hour later, he used his cell phone to call Joni and records show that he was in Ohio. The following day, he brought his brother's family for a Chinese meal and paid for it. Receipts were presented as evidence. 
They said that on Friday, July 4th, the day the prosecution claimed Vincent had been driving back to California, cell phone records placed him in Ohio. Cell phone records also showed that Vincent's phone was still in Ohio over the following days, including the day of the murders. The defense argued there was no forensic evidence, including blood, fibers, or footprints, to link Vincent to the murders. Despite exhaustive searches of his house and car, nothing incriminating was found. The defense blasted the Kern County Crime Lab and called them incompetent as the DNA found on a glove tip beneath the contents of Joni's purse had not been noted as being on the inside or outside of the glove. Defense attorney Gardena said that Vincent would not be able to make the long trip to Bakersfield by car as the vice principal had an undisclosed learning disability that made it difficult for him to navigate. Gardena said that the defense would present expert testimony to dispute aspects of the state's case, including the 5,000-mile round trip Vincent was alleged to have made and the bug evidence that allegedly proved the rental car was in California. The attorney said that Vincent would have had to have driven at speeds of over 100 miles an hour for 22 hours to reach Ohio. He stated, The only way you could do that is to have an air tanker refueling that car. Nobody could drive a car that way. The defense highlighted that there was no footage found of Vincent refueling the car along the route and no receipts, but the prosecution had already presented evidence about withdrawals of over $1,000 in cash that Vincent had made before the trip to Ohio. Eugene White, an entomologist who was an expert on paper wasps, told the court that the bugs were known to travel and could be found outside of California. Curator of the Purdue University Bug Museum, Arwin Provonsha, had agreed with the prosecution's expert on the identification of the bugs bar one. When cross-examined by the prosecution, Provansha admitted they had only questioned the identification a few weeks before the trial, despite reviewing the samples well before it began. Addressing Melvin Brothers' testimony, the defense alleged that he had been coerced into admitting that he had used his brother's credit card and was fearful about getting implicated in a murder investigation. A defense expert in false confessions and police interrogation, Richard Leo, said that threats could elicit false confessions from a witness. The defense alleged that the Bakersfield investigators had repeatedly threatened Melvin Brothers with murder charges if he did not change his account. Melvin had only admitted to using Vincent's credit card after he was shown video footage of him making the purchases in Walmart. Gardena also said that Vincent was never known to own or fire a gun, and the murder weapon was never found. Pastor Roy McPherson testified that he had been present when Vincent was told about the murders on July 8th, after he traveled to North Carolina to visit his mother. The pastor told the court, His knees gave loose. His mother and his sister were on both sides of him, holding him up. Vincent Brothers took the stand in his defense, which stunned the public and legal experts alike. His personal life had been laid bare throughout the trial and in the media for years before he took the stand, and he had to address accusations about his parenting while testifying. Marcus was not Vincent's oldest child. He had an older daughter who was in high school at the time of the trial, and her mother had filed for sole custody once Vincent was named as the lone suspect in the murder investigation. Vincent had been brought to court for child support for his daughter, and in the filings, there were statements about a paternity suit Vincent filed in 1993 to establish the paternity of his daughter, who was born five years earlier. Once he was proven to be the father, he was ordered to pay $350 a month. This was increased to $500 in 1997 and $771 in 2003. His daughter's mother had a restraining order against him at the time after it was alleged he had threatened her and was violent in their relationship, which led to a conviction for domestic abuse. In 2003, he was also paying child support for the three children he had with Joni Harper. His attorney asked him if he would ever harm his children to get out of paying child support, and he replied, Money doesn't mean anything to me. I would never harm my children for any reason. After insisting that he loved Joni, 
Vincent admitted to having affairs. He said he was sorry and that it was ignorance on his part. He explained that their first marriage had only been annulled when a pastor told Joni that his previous marriages invalidated their marriage. The prosecution presented entries from Joni's diary that showed she had ended the relationship after he admitted to being married before. The entry read in part, I feel sadness, anger, betrayal, disillusionment, and sorrow for my loss and that of my children, who would never know what it is to have their father in the home. I also feel very alone. Vincent said he wanted to live with his family, but he had moved into an apartment because he had been threatened by someone his mother-in-law had ministered to. He claimed that Ernestine had helped ex-gang members to better their situations and had once made threats against him and Ernestine, and when she did not allow him to call the police, he left. Vincent also said it was on Ernestine's advice that he went to Ohio in April 2003 to visit his brother for the first time in 10 years. According to Vincent, Ernestine had encouraged him to make the trip so he could help his brother through financial difficulties. Ernestine's daughter, Elaine, did not believe his testimony. She said that her mother had been suspicious about the trips Vincent was making, and she had even changed the locks in the house after the garage door opener went missing after Vincent replaced it. Vincent was asked about a third trip he made to Ohio in September 2003, months after the murders. The prosecution alleged that he had driven there to threaten his brother, Melvin, into remaining silent when questioned, but Vincent said he wanted to drive there to give his brother money for an attorney. At the time of the killings, Vincent had a splint on his arm. He explained that in the days before he went to Ohio, he had crashed a bike and injured it, and was told to wear a splint. The prosecution had presented a witness who said they found no injury on his arm when he arrived, but he had implied that his wife had hurt him when Joni left to get the car. The prosecution alleged that Vincent had used the splint to make himself more noticeable in Ohio for his alibi. Vincent also said that on the day of the murders, July 6th, he had been involved in a minor accident where he crashed the rental vehicle into a boy on a bike in Ohio. The child was fine and left the scene, as did the driver, but Vincent's attorneys argued it was irrefutable proof that he was thousands of miles from the murders. The defense presented witnesses who saw the crash but could not definitively identify Vincent as the driver. Investigators traveled back to Ohio following this testimony and located an incident report on the crash. Then they found the man who admitted to being the one behind the wheel. He had been tracked down through his registration plate. When questioned by the investigators in the homicide case, he said that it had been him who accidentally knocked into the boy on the bike. Joni's friends had testified that she was afraid of her husband before she was killed. Kelsey Spahn recalled, she said that Vincent is crazy and that it is possible he could kill her. Joni's co-worker, Joanne Woodall, also told the jury that if something ever happened to her, she knew the police better look at Vincent. Deputy D.A. Green presented the prosecution's closing statements. She argued that the evidence proved that Vincent had enough time to drive from Ohio to Bakersfield to kill his family before driving back again. No one had seen him in Ohio between Friday, July 4th, 2003, and late on Monday, July 7th, 2003. The prosecutor said that the trip would have taken him around 60 hours in total, and the bugs found on the rental vehicle proved it had been driven in the western part of the country. Addressing the defense's claim that the Harpers were killed late on Sunday night or on Monday, the prosecutor reminded the jury that the victims were found wearing the clothes they had worn to church on Sunday morning and asked, Do you think Ernestine Harper went to sleep Sunday night in her church clothes? No, no, she was dead. She was murdered. She was shot twice in the face. Using Agent Safarek's testimony, Deputy D.A. Green told the jury that only someone close to the victims would know that Joni and the children would be napping in the bedroom close to the garage. Only someone familiar with the house would be able to quickly navigate their way to the hallway outside of Ernestine's bedroom to kill her before she was able to use her own revolver to defend herself. 
The prosecutor said that Vincent had installed the garage door opener, he could have copied Joni's house keys when he had taken her car for repairs, and he was the only person who would have the motive to stab his wife in the back after she had already been shot to death. Green told the jurors, She is the person Vincent Brothers blames for putting him in this situation. In his mind, she has left him no other option than to kill her, the three kids, and Ernestine. According to the prosecutor, Vincent Brothers had testified about 41 lies he had told in relation to his whereabouts, his affairs, and his family life while he was on the stand. She said, He lied because he killed his family, and he is guilty of these horrible crimes. He is a sociopath who has gone through his life lying and manipulating people. Vincent Brothers lives in a world without truth, and he thinks in a world without consequences. After attempting to help the jury make sense of the enormous case that was given to them, Green stated, I will never be able to make you understand how a father can kill his children. Defense attorney Michael Gardena then addressed the jury. He began by attacking the scientific evidence in the case and said that several experts for the defense had disputed the time of death the time it would take to travel from Ohio to Bakersfield, and the bug evidence. Gardena argued that the detectives had decided to focus on Vincent as their only suspect on the day the bodies were found, despite the lack of evidence. He said the witnesses who reported seeing Vincent in Bakersfield were not credible, as one was drinking, and the other only saw him for a few seconds from a vehicle. Gardena also told the jury that it was possible that someone else, a woman, had killed the Harpers as unidentified blonde hairs were found in the bed where the victims were found. The defense argued that Vincent had many relationships, but his pattern was divorce, not murder. After three years of waiting and 15 hours of deliberation by the jury, a verdict was returned. Vincent Brothers was found guilty of five counts of murder, and the special circumstances that they were multiple murders meant that he was eligible for the death penalty. Before the sentencing phase began, Eddie Harper told the Californian that he was relieved. He said, This chapter is closed. The chapter of who. What brings the joy and the excitement is that we can rest in the knowing of who. Eddie explained that while he was looking forward to the sentencing, he did not want anyone else to die, but he did want justice to be served. Eddie said that he and his siblings were ready to forgive Vincent, and they prayed for his family. Vincent's mother, Margaret, continued to protest his innocence outside of the court and insisted the verdict was unfair. She was not the only person who believed in Vincent's innocence. His Fremont co-worker, kindergarten teacher Gwenda Jones said, He's a very beautiful person, a very professional man, always there for the teachers, community, and children. I have never in my life seen him do anything negative. I still feel he's innocent. There won't be a true verdict until they go after other leads. It's just another black man going to jail. The penalty phase of the trial began in May 2007. The mother of Vincent's first child told the jury that he had hit her in the face numerous times while she was pregnant. Shan Kearns said, My right eye was busted open, not deep enough for stitches. My eyes were swollen shut. I could barely see out of them. My face was swollen. I had a busted lip. Eddie Harper, the brother, son, and uncle of the victims, told the court that all he wanted was for Vincent to repent for his crimes. He recalled how his mother had worked hard to ensure her children had not only enough, but advantages that other children had too. He stated, My mother was very special. Whatever she did, she was going to put 100% into it, and she was going to be the best she could be. She was probably the best lab tech. Patients who would have their blood drawn would request her because it would be painless. He spoke about the pain felt by the family after the loss of three generations, but said, while that hole inside of us has been replaced with the love of God and his peace, there is a scar that will never heal, and every now and then the pain will come back. But we thank God we are able to overcome and we are able to go on. 
we realize that my mother left a legacy that she is living through us. The defense tried to show a different side of Vincent by presenting over 20 witnesses who recalled him as being a kind and approachable educator. One teacher, Amy Meadows, told the court, When he entered the room, the students immediately snapped too. They sat up straight and stopped talking. It was out of respect or fear of him not liking them. Before the jury were sent out to decide on Vincent's sentence, Deputy D.A. Green asked them, If not the death penalty for this case, then which case? If not the death penalty for these victims, for which victims? If not the death penalty for Vincent Brothers, then for who? I have heard it said that justice is getting what you deserve and that mercy is getting what you don't deserve. Vincent Brothers deserves as much mercy as he showed to each of his five victims. That is none. Defense attorney Brian told the jury that there was an enormous amount of doubt in the case and said that Vincent Brothers had 41 years of good character. While the jury was deliberating, Vincent's mother spoke to members of the press. She stated, I'm highly upset. My son never killed nobody. They killed his family. Now they want to take his life. I love the Harper family. They are my family. I have been praying for them since day one. I am hurting just like they are hurting. Margaret Brothers said that just because a man sleeps with other women does not make him a murderer. After six hours of deliberations, the jury returned with a verdict recommending that Vincent Brothers be executed for his crimes. Speaking outside, Eddie Harper remarked, We support the verdict. We do not relish the thought that another life will be taken. I hope that he will see this as a time to reconcile with God, reflect on how his actions have hurt his mother, her agony, his daughter, her agony, and possibly his siblings. On Thursday, September 27, 2007, Vincent Brothers was sentenced to death by Superior Court Judge Michael Bush. The judge called the murders cold, calculated, vicious, and beyond words. Vincent's mother said that she left her trust in God that her son would be delivered and proven to be innocent. She also explained that she felt sorry for Vincent's daughter and said, I blame her mother and I'll tell her that to her face. She's a sick lady. Speaking in court, Vincent's only surviving child said that he was no longer her father. He was a man handcuffed to a chair looking straight ahead. She told the court, I am leaving my name with him. I don't have a father now. He will never see me again until it's time to die. Vincent Brothers was brought to the San Quentin State Prison to begin his sentence. He remains incarcerated there on death row and will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Although he had been sentenced to death, no executions have taken place in California since 2006. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We appreciate you listening, and please... Be safe. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.